Um, so today, all the, this last few weeks and, follow, and a few more weeks, we're doing uh, topics. Uh, we're not actually doing a book of the Bible and working our way through it. Um, and I have to say, for me, to talk about a topic is actually a struggle. It's actually a lot more, uh, I find it a lot more difficult um, to, uh, it creates a bit more research. Today, uh, we're talking about the ascension of Jesus and what that means. Um, in, the, in the Bible, we find three accounts of the ascension. Uh, Mark 16, verse 19 says, After the Lord Jesus had spoken to them, he was taken up into heaven and sat at the right hand of God. Uh, Luke mentions it twice. Uh, in Luke 24, 50, he says, at the very end of Luke's gospel, he says, When he had led them out into the vicinity of Bethany, he lifted up his hands and blessed them. While he was blessing them, he left them and was taken up into heaven. And in the other book that Luke wrote, um, the book of Acts, at the very beginning of that book, uh, he says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way that you have seen him go to heaven. So today we're talking about the ascension. It's the very last, if you like, minute of Jesus' time on earth in bodily form. Jesus was present at creation in the beginning when God made the heavens and the earth. Through Jesus, everything was made. He came down from heaven and he was born in a stable in a town called Bethlehem. His mother was called Mary and she um, bore him because she became pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Jesus' father was actually not Joseph, but it was God himself. Even though Joseph um, took on Jesus as, as his own, he actually wasn't his biological father, which means that Jesus was fully human and fully God. And this is a really important point of the Christian faith. Um, a big word that um, some people use to describe this is God incarnate. It means God in human form. Jesus lived on this earth with all the temptations of this earth, but he ne never stepped outside of his character as God incarnate. He never sinned, not even once. He was crucified on a cross at Jerusalem by men who thought that he was a threat to their church. But it was all part of God's plan for him to die as a sacrifice and pay for our sins, the sins of the world. Three days later, he rose from the dead with a body that Paul calls in 1 Corinthians 15 a spiritual body. It is still a body with flesh 
and bone, but not a body that's subject to death. Jesus ascended not as a ghost or a spirit, but as a human being. Luke says in Acts 1 verse 3, after his suffering, he showed himself to these men, that's the disciples, and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. So Jesus, 40 days after he rose from the dead, ascended into heaven and is now seated at the right hand of God, ruling all things. In fact, 1 Corinthians 15, 25 says he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. So the ascension is the account of Jesus' return to heaven. Yeah, always good to have a bold statement in a sermon. We cannot get to heaven, at least not by ourselves. We actually can't even get to heaven even with somebody else's help. John 3.13 says, I can see the question marks looking in them. It's really good. Um, No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. To get to heaven, we have to be in Christ, like a passenger, as it were. He has to take us there. Jesus does not illustrate the way. He doesn't show us the way. Jesus is the way. John 14, 6 says, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I like the analogy of a passenger because to be a passenger on a trip, you have to be in the vehicle. In the same way, the only way we can ascend to heaven is to be in Jesus. Now, this concept of being in Christ is in Scripture everywhere. Augustine, in the late 4th century, spelled this out when he said, Cleave unto Christ, who by descending and ascending has made himself the way. Do you wish to ascend? Hold fast to him that ascends. For by your own self, you cannot rise. Do you wish to ascend also? Be then a member of him who only has ascended. For he, the head, with all the members, is but one man. And no one can ascend, but he who in his body is made a member of him. The ascension of Jesus gives us Um, I reckon, great assurance and encouragement. Firstly, um, the first point about that I want to make today is it's God incarnate who ascended. Before the eyes of the apostles, Jesus disappeared into a cloud, not a cumulonimbus cloud, one that we might actually wish at the moment for in this dry period, but a cloud that represents the glory of God. You may have called it, heard people call it a glory cloud. Jesus didn't leave his human body. And Jesus went to great lengths to show himself to be alive as a human during those 40 days. He walked with the disciples, he talked with them, he ate food in front of them, he even let them touch him 
Thomas touched the nail holes and saw the scars of the crucifixion. The ascension of Jesus in the same body in which he was crucified and resurrection, resurrected establishes his continuing union with humanity. Luke 24, 36 says, While they were still talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them and said, Peace be with you. They were startled and frightened, thinking they saw a ghost. He said to them, Why are you troubled and why do doubts rise in your minds? Look at my hands and my feet. It's I myself. Touch me and see. A ghost doesn't have flesh and bones, as you see that I have. Jesus was very deliberate to point out that he had a body that could be touched with flesh and bone. He ascended in his human body into another realm, into the heavenly realm. If Jesus wasn't legitimately connected to humanity, God incarnate, he couldn't have paid the price for human sinfulness. But as a human, he died for us. We humans can have hope because that same human ascended and if we are in him, we also ascend. Uh, The second point, when Jesus ascended, he didn't just go up and sit around on a cloud. He ascended to a position of authority. He rules the entire universe. Matthew 28 and also Revelation 5 tells us that right now Jesus is ruling heaven and earth with all authority. Colossians 1.18 says he is head of the church. This world is under his control and Jesus is building his church. I urge you not to listen to teaching that tells you otherwise because it's unscriptural and it will take away your your assurance. Apologies for all the Bible references this morning. Actually, if you you need some later, please um, ask. John 14.2 says that Jesus is in heaven preparing a place for every one of his children. And when he comes again, he will take us there. And we can be very encouraged that as a passenger with Jesus, as the king of the universe... He has complete control. He loves us and he's only got the very best for us. Romans 8.34 tells us that the ascended Jesus is at the right hand of God and is interceding for us before God. Intercession means to intervene on behalf of another. The king of the universe is praying for us. I want to ask you, have you noticed the pattern of the cross? Have you noticed the pattern that runs through, this pattern runs through all of scripture? This pattern is that evil men had planned to crucify Jesus. But incredibly, God used this event for the salvation of all mankind. And even more incredibly, in Acts 4.28, said that, they did whatever God's hand had predestined to take place. God planned it in perfect justice and in holiness. And in that same way, in that same pattern, he turns all things, both the good and the bad, into good for those who love him. This is God's pattern. Nothing is outside of his plan. However, we are always responsible for our evil deeds. 
See, sin has consequences that have to be paid for by death. The full wrath of God has come, has to come against anyone who sins. But for those in Christ, Jesus who sits at God's right hand intervenes. So when you sin, yes, be repentant, but take heart. Jesus is beside the Father, reminding him, based on what he has done on the cross, he says, I paid for that one. He belongs to me. If you're in Christ, Jesus is interceding for you. Hebrews 7.35 says, Therefore he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. In um, ancient times, the king's throne room was also a court. A place where the king rules, but also where justice and judgments are done. So, do you think that God gets tired of Jesus' plea for intervention? Do you think Jesus comes before the Father and he says, Rob has sinned again. Please have mercy. Do you think God could one day say, enough is enough. Seriously, that bloke is just not having a go. I think he could. And if he did, that would put me in a very insecure and scary position. But it's not what Jesus asked for. Jesus, before God, says, Rob has sinned again. Let justice be done. I have paid for his, for his crime. Rob needs acquittal. He's free. And because it would be unjust to pay for the same crime twice, God says, case closed. Justice has already been served. <coughs> Rob's now set free. It's a watertight case. <coughs> if you're in Jesus, you have complete assurance. The third question is, why, why did Jesus go? Why did he leave? Why did he return? He, he ascended so that we can receive the Holy Spirit. Um, the main work of the Holy Spirit, I could go on for hours and hours, couldn't I? Is to glorify the Son, who in turn glorifies the Father. He does this in many ways, but today I want to bring it back to just four points or headings. The first one is that the Spirit brings life to the Word of God. And he brings the centrality of Christ and his cross. He reminds believers of the things Jesus has said and bears witness to Jesus. John 14:7 and 15:26 tell us that. Um, the second thing is that he empowers the preaching and the proclamation of Christ, like what Sal said in the kids' address. 
As we preach Christ crucified, the Holy Spirit transforms our stumbling words into the words of eternal life, convicting the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. And not only that, he enables us to speak the word with boldness. See, he brings new life to believers. Jesus said, don't be surprised that we must be born of the Spirit. Through the Holy Spirit, we're born again. The Holy Spirit sanctifies the believer as he transforms us into the image of Christ. He also testifies with our spirit, Abba Father. We are his children. The fourth thing that I've got this morning about the ascension is that it gives us assurance of the future and peace about the present. See, without the ascension, it's a bit like the boss has left the building and he goes away and, and as you look around the, the building, you can see the tone, you can see, wow, there's a big heap of work to do and only us to do it. That's an extremely heavy message. On the other hand, Colossians 3.2 says, Set your mind on things above, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Our life in Christ is so secure. It's like we're on a dangerous journey. But us being in Christ, being in that vehicle, are hidden. There's enemies that want to attack us. There's enemies that want to kill us. But they can't even see us. We're so secure in him. We can rest in this reality. A lot of Christians function with this idea that God has set us a potential to achieve. And it's up to us to live in that potential. And if we can do this, if we can ignite, we'll ignite our true self and we'll give fulfilment to our lives. We try to make real what God has only established as potential. This leaves God up there being very disappointed with us down here trying to pray it or faith it or fake it into existence. This is absolutely not the gospel. The truth is that Jesus fulfilled all of God's expectations and we join him by faith. Jesus had no failures. The gospel is not just a please forgive me safety net when we mess up. No, in Christ we already have everything. It's not some potentially available thing that we have to work at. If we're a passenger in Christ, we can live, we can work and we can rest in a peace that the world cannot give, knowing that he's holding us, helping us and preserving us by his Holy Spirit. Our future is totally secure. And he will return in the same way he went and he will take us <coughs> to be with himself. I've spoken a lot this morning about being in Christ. If you're a Christian, you're in Christ. How do you know 
that you're a Christian, it's because you believe in Jesus. Um, this morning, we're going to communion now. Yep. This morning, we're going to have a time of communion. And uh, I want to share something that I shared um, probably a few months ago about communion at a night service once. Um, when Moses led the Israelites out of Egypt, um, this is what the Lord says, about midnight I will go throughout Egypt. Every firstborn son in Egypt will die from the firstborn son of Pharaoh who sits on the throne to the firstborn son of a slave girl who is at her handmill and all the firstborn cattle as well. As well. Till the whole community of Israel that on the tenth day of this month each man is to take a lamb for his family, one for each household. The animals must be, you choose must be year-old males without defect and you may take them from the sheep or the goats. Take care of them until the 14th day of the month when all the people of the community Israel must slaughter them at twilight. Then they are to take some of the blood and put it on the sides and the tops of the door frames of the houses where they eat the lambs. This is how you are to eat it if your cloak with your t- cloak tucked in your belt, your sandals on your feet and your staff in your hand. Eat it in haste. It's the Lord's Passover. On that same night, I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn, both men and animals, and I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. This is a day you are to commemorate. For the generations to come, you shall celebrate it as a festival to the Lord, a lasting ordinance. As we come before communion, we realise Jesus was sitting down at table with his disciples, celebrating that very ordinance. While they were eating, Jesus took bread. He gave it thanks. He gave thanks and he broke it and he gave it to his disciples saying, take and eat. This is my body. And then he took the cup, gave thanks and offered it to them saying, drink from it, all of you. This is the blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. The interesting thing is that it was actually the Lord who went through Egypt killing the firstborn. The interesting thing is that the blood protected the Israelites from the wrath of God. In the same way, the blood of Jesus on the cross protects us from the wrath of God and the consequences of our sin. As you consume the bread and the wine today, as you come out in your own time and come back and eat and drink, let's confess our sins, our unrighteousness, our unfaithfulness, our lusts of the flesh, our anger, our jealousy and our boasting. And let us remember that his grace is sufficient for all these.
we are fully forgiven. Father God, as we eat and drink this morning, I pray that you would refresh us anew by your Holy Spirit, that we would be born again into that living relationship of freedom with you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.